As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Be the best and you got to pay a little price. If you want it bad enough, you got to do a little extra things to get it. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodriguez, and with me, as always, my fabulous co-host, Rich Hammond Rich. How we doing? Jordan, we got to watch some football the other day. I mean, technically speaking. Asterisk. I guess. <laughs> but football, nonetheless. One thing that is great has been great about mm-hmm. the Rams preseason for the last two seasons is even though it is preseason football, you are guaranteed that Bryce Perkins will make it worth the price of admission because that dude lights it up in the preseason. Um, his lore, his lore, and his legend expands. Yes, Mister Preseason, as as it were, which is not uh, look if you're if you're a guy who's uh, looking to to earn your spot in the league and keep your spot in the league, that's not the worst thing in the world to to shine out in the, in the preseason. So, of course, we are talking about Saturdays. Uh, Rams 29 to 22 victory over the dreaded neighbors partners whatever you want to call them the Chargers great uniform combination by the way I, I need to say that up front sharp what on a, screen what a stunning uh display of, of two really great uniforms so that was my big takeaway that'll be my big <laughs> contribution uh to the uh to the podcast today but uh Jordan let's just be clear here. We we knew going in that this is what this was going to be. We're kind of joking about, oh, backups and Bryce Perkins, all that. This has been the trend for quite a while now, and everybody knew that, that this is basically what it was going to be. So you know that going in, and you look for people to say, all right, who's who's going to grab that brass ring? Who's going to shine? You mentioned Bryce Perkins has now done it consistently over the last couple of years. But Jordan... My goodness, we you know we we talk and, and we're going to say it again at the end of the episode about how you need to subscribe to the Athletic to to get all of Jordan's coverage. Jordan was telling you about a young receiver you probably hadn't heard about named Lance McCutcheon way back when, and it showed out just some outstanding catches. I mean, that was my first real opportunity uh, to see him in in live action anyway. Um, 60 yard catch and run, a great touchdown catch. Jordan, you, it didn't surprise you, but but were you surprised at all to see him uh, show out in that type of environment? So the, the 
it didn't surprise me. No, I think we it, kind of similar to Bryce. This was something that the Rams and you know were expecting to be a possibility, and and certainly I was expecting Lance to not only get a ton of playing time, but then also make a case for why they should bench him for the rest of the preseason so that they can hide the guy. Um, right. Because there's no way he sits on a practice squad after that outing. I mean, it, it's not just that it was a great performance from him. He did not look like a rookie and he did not look like an undrafted free agent. And that's the differentiation between, oh, this guy flashed in the preseason versus, yeah, other teams will want to sign this guy. Mm, <laughs> so yeah. that was kind of where they were at with Bryce Perkins last year, too. That differentiation specifically between yes, he's great in the preseason, and oh shit, another team might sign this guy if we waive him to bring him back on the practice squad. He could get claimed off waivers, and that obviously would have to be on the active roster somewhere else to do so. The Rams' wealth of receivers and other teams, specifically also some teams that sit very high on the waivers that don't have the wealth of receivers the Rams have, that would be very enticing indeed. So I think that this is a champagne problem. Sean McVay said, Yesterday, today is Monday morning when we were recording. Sean McVay had a press conference yesterday um, and said he certainly thinks that Lance McCutcheon has a case for making the 53-man roster. And part of it also is because Lance McCutcheon can play special teams. And that's what I saw during camp that made me think not just his work in OTAs, which is when I first, I think I tweeted about it. I don't know. It's definitely in an article. It's on Twitter, whatever. Anyway, the I was like, okay, so this guy does not move like a rookie. He he moved confidently. He has sort of that, and and nobody truly, I don't think, really compares to Cooper Cup. But in terms of that professionalism, um, specifically, like not wide eyed, just very like this isn't too much for me to absorb and process, and very this coolness sort of of moving through his assignments and his responsibilities. You could really see that. You could tell the difference between guys who are a little rattled by being there um, versus guys who are like, nope, I'm, I'm good with this actually. And Lance McCutcheon is the latter, of course. And I, and so, and then Cooper cup shouting him out very subtly in his, one of his press conferences in the spring. I mean, you pay attention when Cooper calls someone out, like you pay attention to who that player is when he name drops someone, especially um, someone who's an undrafted free agent and who like Cooper is from the big sky conference. So I think that this, this was, this has been an interesting development. Now, Again, even people who attended training camp probably didn't see much of Lance because he was usually working with the third team on offensive installs. And that's that's also okay. That's where they're installing the structures of their offense to especially for players who don't necessarily have the full, you know, grasp of it yet because they're rookies or they're super new additions to the team or in a lot of cases their depth. But I think that this was an interesting onboarding for him because he also was playing on special teams too. So all of this becomes a lot more intriguing, not just because of what his clear ability is. Um, and also I, I have saved a tweet from somebody after I did tweet about Lance in the, um, in OTAs, I have a tweet saved where, this person said, oh, he doesn't really do much. He can get open sometimes. I'm paraphrasing. I have, I, I don't have it. I don't have my phone in front of me, but I have it screenshot where it's like, oh, um, you know, he's not altogether strong or fast or whatever. He can just kind of get open sometimes. And that's all he does. Kind of implying that he's like a one trick guy. Mm. I was like, well, I just watched him moss somebody. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> I'm pretty sure. 
that's fine. I'm pretty sure Matthew Stafford's watching that and freaking drooling over on the sideline. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But it, it is intriguing. And it's more intriguing because, and you never obviously want people to be hurt, but the opportunities will increase um, in the preseason because Jacob Harris is recovering from a groin injury. Now, a lot of these guys who he maybe would have been competing for snaps for, they are not playing in the preseason because Van Jefferson is um, dealing with his his knee rehab, which I hear is going well right now. Um, so guys like Ben Skronik and Tutu Atwell and Brandon Powell, who are in the not just me hypothesizing, Sean McVay outright now finally coming out and saying a committee of players who could replace the snaps that Van Jefferson would otherwise take, right. um, which presents its own problems that we've covered in depth um, <laughs> in previous episodes. So we're not going to re- relitigate that, but. Because Van Jefferson is not currently playing, you also have to be extra careful with some of the other guys who would be in that committee. Um, and then so it further opens up the um, the opportunity for a player like Lance McCutcheon because not only are you not necessarily directly competing for snaps at this current moment with Jacob Harris because Jacob Harris is recovering from an injury, but also you are you have more of a snap share because a Ben Skoranek is not taking preseason snaps. A Tutu Atwell is not taking preseason snaps. A Brandon Powell is not taking preseason snaps. So it's like you and JJ Koski and just a bunch of guys who, you know, are are have been really solid practice squatters or depth guys for the Rams. And it's it's his time to shine. And so I think that this is a huge opportunity for him. It's a huge moment for him. It certainly was incredibly impressive. Surprised? No, but very impressive all the same. Yeah, Jordan, and it's not a case where he was just the best of those guys that you're talking correct. about. Yeah, I mean, correct. it's it's a case where uh, he, you really showed you something, independent of who was out there on the field with him or who was throwing the ball or who was whatever. Like, I mean, you could you could see the skill there, and and yeah. that to, to me is something that's going to translate no matter uh, no matter who's out there with him. Might even be elevated if if he you know depending on uh, who, who he's playing with with the other personnel out there. So. So very impressive, and uh, your 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 scouting skills are uh, are, are shining through. With uh, I'm good for it. one. I'm good for one a year, that, maybe. That's, that's better than <laughs> that's I ever fine. did. Let's put it that way. I, I never uh, one of fifty three. My hit y- rate's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. That's uh, I, I would take that and run with it. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we want to go through a few. And, and by the way, if people haven't already seen it, you, you have a, a, a great column uh, up on The Athletic right now that got published on, on Sunday, I believe, about uh, all about this game and, and kind of takeaways. But kind of wanted to go a little bit more in depth on on, on a couple of these just because there are some interesting. Oh, oh, by the way, we'll get to the punter, too. I got a couple of tweets uh, during the week. How come you guys haven't been talking about punting? What about special teams? Uh, so we'll make sure we, we talk about the punting situation uh, before we get to the to the end there. But but just keeping it on offense a, a little bit, Jordan. It, the, the one thing that's, that's hard to tell sometimes is some of these offensive line uh, rotations and, and who is playing exactly how much. But uh, I, I know we were both kind of keeping an eye on on Logan Bress and, and obviously, you know, a, a big uh, a big name, I guess you would say, in, in terms of the preseason anyway, but, but a big uh, a part of this preseason and how he's going to fit. Is he going to be able to potentially earn a starting job? Is he going to be able to show that he can contribute uh, during a season? So first preseason game, you're not going to put a ton of stock into that for an offensive lineman being out there for the first time. But but what was your takeaway from uh, from watching him during that game? 
Yeah, I thought he got a lot better as the game continued. There was a pretty uh, gnarly moment there in the first quarter where he had sort of his welcome to the NFL um, scene, I guess you would say, and and he'll remember that. And and then you could see him putting it together and learning kind of as time went. And I would also say, too, that this is not a line that he played with through the rest of the training camp like he's repping in with the ones and twos so when you're in live action and then it's a bunch of guys that you have not repped alongside through the entire rest of of the year minus you know AJ Jackson who I also thought played really well um that's also gonna be a little bit of an issue I think you're not gonna maybe get a fully clear picture just from us as casual as casual people or studiers of the football like you're not going to maybe get a full representation like the coaching staff who's looking for specific things from him. We'll get, you know, he's never going to be lining up next to Bobby Evans. Um, he is never going to be lining up next to Jeremiah Cologne. And I think that this is, this is just one of those sort of caveats where you isolate his snaps and look at those things. And I think, and, and, and in doing that, I thought he got a lot better as the game went on. And you even saw the coaching staff seeing some good things from him through the end of the first half, pulled him for the third quarter and then sent him back in in the fourth and where I thought he played really well in that fourth quarter. So that was good. I, I think that there's there's a lot to a lot of promise there for Logan Bruss, um, someone who I thought also sort of solidified his spot, not just on the 53, but on the 46 was Alaric Jackson. And that's interesting because if we're looking at the line as a whole at that point, Coleman Shelton, to me, is in full command of that right guard spot right now. And it's important, too, that you have him because he can play any of the interior spots on the offensive line. And in that regard, you have not just a rostered, and I'm talking about the 46 specifically. So the guys who are active on game day specifically, who get a jersey on game day, and you you have to decide how many linemen. You maybe carry seven to eight linemen, right? And in, especially with if they're going to carry shitload receivers, probably seven, right? right. <laughs> seven linemen. So right. it's important that one of your linemen can not only back up your center in a pinch, but also play either guard spot in a pinch. It's important that that uh, David Edwards could kick out to tackle in a pinch. It's important that Rob Havenstein's so solid, and then Joe Noteboom is is who he is, and and is, is has been really solid through camp and. You know, really, I think you can expect some promising things from him as long as he can stay healthy. So having those numbers and then having Coleman Shelton, who's a what we call interior swing man, essentially, because he can move from side to side. And then A.J. Jackson, who can be a bit of a swing man in a sense because you saw him kick inside to guard and and sort of hold his own pretty well. Some of their better running plays, I think, from from that game and, you know, Sean McVay mentioned some, a really great point yesterday where it was like, it's really hard to evaluate the run game when you do have someone as dynamic as Bryce. And it wasn't a knock on Bryce, but it was like, you're not really going to run your running game because you know that the quarterback is the biggest threat on the field in the run. So I think, you know, understanding that, but I think some of their, some of their stronger plays did come in the run when AJ Jackson was on the field and in a variety of, of positions, um, and so I think that you're, that's kind of what you're looking at. You're looking at Logan Bruss, um, active. You're looking at, um, the five that we know, um, active. You're looking at AJ Jackson and you're looking at, at, um, and I think that's your 46, frankly. And, and that's kind of s- simple, right? And yeah. I'm sure it'll complicate 
two weeks from now because that's the Rams. But it's, you know, it seems like they they sort of that that's really important to have that sort of solidified this time of year and, and figured out. And and of course, other guys could come in and maybe crack spots. I'm still looking to see what AJR Curie can do. Um, you know, I, I think that but but in terms of maybe your seven that you're looking at, you're looking at and I'm counting on my fingers just so I'm counting correctly. Um, yeah. You're looking at uh, Joan Boom, David Edwards, Brian Allen. Um, Coleman Shelton at that starting right guard spot, Rob Havenstein, and then you're looking at uh, Logan Bruss because you have to you, you drafted him saying he will compete for a starting spot, so you know right. he's gotta gonna have to do that. Um, Logan Bruss and AJ Jackson, and I think you're you're pretty confident in that seven. I think that's pretty that's a pretty solid game day active. That's right where you want to be, right? I mean, that's the and as you as you said, things can change. Things probably will change at some point, but that's a much better position to be in than looking at your group and going, "Oh boy, who's going to fill these seven yeah. spots?" Yeah. Um, you know, where you want to be right now is okay. If the season started tomorrow, you know, we've got our seven, and and if something happens over the next. Uh, three weeks here to to change that if somebody you know just shows that they have to be on that active roster because they're playing so well and doing so well that's a great problem to have that's exactly what you want to have you don't you don't want to have the problem of oh boy we've got these three guys here and we're just going to pick the best one of them because we need somebody um that that's not where you want to be so uh you know Excellent news for the Rams' perspective to hear that Joe Noteboom is doing well. Excellent to hear that Coleman Shelton seems to have grabbed a hold of that spot. Uh, encouraging that that Logan Bruss seems to be showing that that he can handle something. So that's really kind of the best case scenario. I mean, we don't know, frankly. Nobody knows what's going to happen when Week One comes and these guys get tested for the first time against a you know Buffalo pass rush. We don't know, uh, but and we're not we're not going to know between now and then. But uh, they seem to have put themselves in in as good a position as as you can get. Um, and, and Jordan, along those lines, you, you talked about the the run blocking, and I, I'm curious just to get your thoughts on 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 that running back uh, situation here. Um, because obviously there's uh, there's Cam Akers and obviously there's Daryl Henderson and and if those two guys are healthy, which is always the big question. But but let's assume let's assume that that you go into the season with with a healthy uh, Cam Akers and a healthy Daryl Henderson. What are we looking at but behind them in in terms of numbers? I mean, you just went through the numbers with the offensive linemen, what that could look like. Um, you've again, you've got a guy who they drafted in in Kyron Williams, who's obviously going to get a good look because of that. Uh, you you've got Jake Funk, who obviously was there last year and contributed. You've got Raymond Calais. You've got AJ Rose. I mean, how is that? Uh, again, not to put too much of it on one game, of course, but but kind of how do you how do you see that shaping out at this point? So one thing that I thought of that I, it kind of struck me this morning because I was kind of looking at old clips and just kind of going through what what was going on this time last year, mm-hmm. and because I have no life, as you know, um, <laughs> walk the dog, go through old clips, get sure. ready for practice, drink gallon of coffee, yeah. um, so you know, <laughs> hydrate. Um, so I think. So I was looking at um, Daryl Henderson from last year, and obviously he went through like a bit of a dicey training camp, right? Where he he was not healthy through training camp. Now that this is a big difference, he is health. He's been healthy through training camp. He was working through a bit of a soft tissue injury in the spring, but and I'm knocking on wood. You can literally hear I me hear doing it. it. Yeah. Um, he has been healthy through training camp, and he will not be playing in the preseason. So there is no reason that he will not start the season as healthy 
as he has ever been, if not healthier, right? So it's kind of at that point a little bit of an unknown. So I think that there that's some and then obviously there was no Cam Akers last year this time either. So they were in a bit of a bind. This year to me, one, two, three is, you know, Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson. And I saw them taking pretty even rep share through training camp with the ones, working a lot in the passing game. There's no reason to believe that the Rams won't at least initially start with a bit of an, a committee approach um, as they've done for the past couple of years. And and I assume one of those guys will take the lead as time progresses, as we have seen them done do in, in previous years. Previous years, of course, the caveat is they've had to because of injuries in various places. But, you know, I think that then um, you're looking at the three spot and I think you're looking at Jake Funk in that three spot not just because he has a ton more uh, of the experience, but also because of how he is contributing on special teams. And the three and the four at running back probably have to contribute on special teams. And and also, I'll say this too, they love Kyron Williams, love Kyron Williams. They are still, they initially said he would play in the, probably the third preseason game or joint practices would be what they're looking at for him, but have since sort of pulled back a little bit and said they're not sure if he actually will, although he is on track and his rehab's going well after that broken foot in the spring. And obviously he's off pup and he's contributing and they love Kyron Williams. But I think you're looking at a kind of a big if, like, do you keep four running backs? And Mm. I think- the health of Cam Akers and the health of Daryl Henderson, the way that you want to use them, and then the 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 people you need elsewhere um, contributing on special teams, you know, you need to make sure that Kyron Williams and Jake Funk both, if you're keeping both of them, can can contribute on special teams. We know for a fact Jake Funk can, right. um, and it's not Kyron's fault that we don't know whether he can or not. He just hasn't had the opportunity because he's been hurt. So. This is where it's a little complicated because their numbers are going to shake out a little bit complicated because they're going to carry extra DBs um, because they're all so good at such a young age and they're going to probably carry extra receivers. Like I could really see this team carrying eight receivers. I'm not kidding. And I think that's wild to say out loud. But then you think about, okay, well, they'll only keep three tight ends, you know, Tyler Higbee, Bryson Hopkins and Kendall Blanton. And then I think... Tyler and Kendall are the one and the two. And then Bryson, I think, has really improved. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a solid tight end group and you, you only keep three. So, you know, that gives you an extra number for receiver, but you need two extra numbers for receiver without removing from your DBs because right. not only do those guys have to play special teams, but they also um, are all like you don't want to cut any of those young guys that you brought in because they're all very good. And so then maybe that means you're looking at uh, a top heavy position that where starters are established, where the the last spot is a little bit um, up for decision. And that those are the kinds of leverages that they're making and the kinds of sort of checks and balances that they're that they're making this time of year. And so I I I, I would think that they would want to keep both Jake Funk, Funk and Kyron Williams. I would assume that they would want to keep both of those guys. Um However, I can't know for sure if they do want to keep four running backs on the active roster when they re- release their initial 53. So I-, I can't know that for sure. I just know that for sure they would like to keep these young DBs around and for sure they are not putting s- any sort of cap on what they're going to be doing um, at receiver in terms of the numbers because now 
in my opinion, as of now, it's early, obviously, but in my opinion, you do not cut Lance McCutcheon. Right. Um, in my opinion, you you do not cut Brandon Powell because Joe DiCamillis was pretty blatantly, you know, honest about how he is not feeling confident in Tutu Atwell's development as a return specialist. Um, and so in that regard, you need a return specialist at that point, which you would obviously in a perfect world, your, your four, your number four receiver, um, could do that for you. But in this case, they'll keep an extra and Brandon Powell can also work into the offense, did some nice things in the slot when he was, um, working with the ones and the twos in training camp. And so you're looking at sort of loaded numbers there and, and on D and at DB and those D extra DBs can play special teams and those extra receivers can play special teams. Brandon Powell obviously plays special teams. Um, Lance McCutcheon obviously plays special teams. If you keep Jacob Harris, which I think it'd be, he'd be very hard to cut because of how much potential he has there. And he just has been hurt and it's not his fault. He's been hurt. It just, there's so much potential there and you just moved him over into receiver understanding that you would be front loaded at receiver. So to me, this is a real awareness that they have about it. Um, he's very hard to cut because he yeah. plays in all four special teams phases um, and the explosive athletic potential is there. So that means that you're looking elsewhere. And this is a long way of winding back around and, uh, to your running back question saying, is that the place where they think, okay, you know, we made it through last year. If we can just keep these guys healthy this year, then already we're doing better than we did last year right. um, at the position. And so that's kind of where I'm thinking some of the conversations might be in terms of their checks and balances right now. Yeah. And that's such a huge part of it, right? I mean, it's a, it's a huge puzzle piece that you have to pick to put together. It's not always, oh, we want to keep this number of running backs or this number of receivers. It's, it's, it's a zero sum game. Like if you want to keep one of those young receivers, then what are you going to get rid of? Are you not going to keep another linebacker? Are you not going to keep another defensive back? So that's kind of the, uh, the puzzle piece that, that, um, or the puzzle that has to be put together this time of year. And Jordan, you, you mentioned um, specifically the DBs, which is the other area that, that I wanted to, to get into, because again, we're seeing some of these younger guys, they're getting an opportunity and, and they're also taking advantage of it. And, and you look at it and you're going, okay, you look at the safeties, and, you know, if you've got Jordan Fuller, you've got Terrell Burgess, you've got Taylor Rapp, you've got Nick Scott, then you look at the more veteran cornerbacks, you've got Jalen Ramsey, you've got Troy Hill, then you've got guys who aren't really veterans, but David Long, Robert Rochelle, they've been around a little bit. And then you've got these younger guys who are showing out, Jacoby Durant, Darian Kendrick. I mean, what, again, special teams, again, so important to all of this, but but how many, how many opportunities are going to be there? And I didn't even mention a couple of the younger safeties who, who played uh, yesterday too. But uh, again, assuming there's full health here, I mean, what are these guys looking at? How, how much of a competition is there uh, at those, at those positions? Well, so far, I think it's good that we've seen Jacoby, Darion, Robert Rochelle and Rush East all on special teams. Like we've seen them working in one phase or the other, whether it's protection or blocking, like and Robert Rochelle, I think, is one of the better just me watching what he did in camp and as they're working on uh, downing punts and gunner drills. Like to me, he's one of the more intriguing um, gunners that they possibly could, that they have. Right. That's healthy right now. He's got right. really long arms. He's got great awareness. He made that great play despite breaking his ribs in the process last year to down a punt like inside the four last last season and then had to 
you know, miss the, a lot of the rest of the season because he broke his ribs while doing it. Um, and so I think like you're, when you're talking about special teams specifically, not only does that help maybe justify keeping more of this position group because you're not now you're missing a, a lot of ins, a couple of inside linebackers who would other otherwise play special teams for you. Like Ernest and Bobby are not going to play special teams as they should not. Um, it's possible that all three of their starting safeties, which I consider them as having three starting safety starting safeties because of the caliber of they are and some of the interesting things that they could maybe do um, in with Nick Scott, Jordan Fuller and Taylor Rapp this year. And, you know, Nick Scott has always played special teams, but I don't think that maybe he's doing that in high of a volume in this in a, as high of a volume. So you're subtracting there and adding elsewhere. So it's all, like I said, it's all roster math is all you could go down a rabbit hole with it. Yeah. But I will say for sure, um, to me, it seems like the Rams are super comfortable with their veterans at the position. It doesn't mean that a young player like a K- Darion Kendrick or Jacoby Durant, it doesn't mean that they're not at some point sort of lapping some of the older guys late in the season or injuries, what have you. They say it all the time, these DBs, they say we needed every single guy last year. And they did. And so I think that, and then plus, you know, Eric Weddle off the street, right? Or off his couch right. and or off the pickup basketball court. And so, you know, <laughs> they they can't, I think that they feel really good about the level of depth that they have, which is interesting because it was one of the more questioned positions coming into 2022. And I think that that's where you make sort of allowances elsewhere because you also are thinking you need certain guys in your system and on the roster next year. You've got several contracts coming up in both corner and safety, right? And these are positions outside of Jalen Ramsey that they have not heavily invested in in the past financially. So you're looking at, okay, it's not just I need this guy as depth because I know he could step in and play in a pinch this season. I also need him in our system and in the language for next year. Right. Um, and so I think that's what you're you're sort of looking at. And it's interesting because the way that I see the starters right now, as of today, which is August 15th, 2022, the starting corners I see as obviously Jalen Ramsey, um, as of now, David Long, um, as of now, Troy Hill. And I think Robert Rochelle sort of is is on the line there just because he does have the experience and he's so got so much potential and he really has battled. They have isolated him a lot on the outside and he's really battled. But I also think that really coming in hot is Darion Kendrick in a similar sort of outside corner role. And you need two of them, right? Because Jalen's still going to play inside and, you know, at some point, maybe even shift to safety later, you know, later on in his career. And and so you need guys who you who can command those outer posts and those overhang spots at corner, right? So that's fine. If, if, if there's competition at that outside CB spot, that's perfectly fine if you're the Rams. And then at safety, I see, uh, and then, you know, obviously, Dakobe Durant, absolutely, they want to keep long term, um, and so you know, not to not to discount him. Dan Isom did some nice things. They'll want to probably keep him on their practice squad and try to stash him a bit. Um, so, I, but in terms of the starters, that's who I'm seeing right now this year. In terms of starters for safeties, who I'm seeing right now, um, you know, if if they're going to start in a too high, I'm looking at Jordan Fuller and Nick Scott. Jordan Fuller is still working back to full health, as I keep saying over and over and over and over again, because I saw some headlines that were like, whoa, why isn't Jordan Fuller 
listed as a starting safety. And I'm like, okay, well, he is a starting safety. Uh, and I've seen that every single day at training right. camp. Right. But he's also working back from an injury, which we've said many, many times. Um, and then you have Taylor Rapp, who I also consider a starting caliber safety in, in, in some of the sub packages if they they explore certain things. Like, of course, you're you're gonna see that. And then um, and then, you know, Terrell Burgess is is there for. But I think Russ Yeast has a ton of potential and also can contribute in, in a variety of ways. So you kind of want to keep him around too. And I don't know if you can I don't know if you can stash a rush rush yeast. There are so many teams playing now, the two high shell, that Russ not only came out of, but also is seems very aware of and very seems to be fitting in fine. And, you know, other teams, the 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 Brandon Staley's, you know, right, the sure. the Kevin O'Connell's, like they're kind of side eyeing who the Rams have on their rosters right now, right? Mm-hmm. And the 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 Giro Everos, like they're kind of side eyeing, like okay, who might they got a lot of these guys? Who might they cut? And like we need this specific language in this system. So right. that's that's a first, you know, when you're doing the roster math, all of this is is gets so complicated, but um. But yeah, that's how I kind of handicap the starting DBs, and that's kind of what I look at in terms of that that roster math that we love so much, Rich. Yeah, I love that position too. That that's the one I've just I, I keep an eye on. Like I, I like the potential there. I like the mix that they have, and just very curious to see. And great point, Jordan, too, is that you know, you know this roster math that you're talking about is not always about this year. Uh, I mean, I, I know I'm Captain Obvious here saying this, but you, you don't have a farm team. You don't you don't have the ability to to send guys down and develop them. And oh, we'll call them up next year. And no, no, no. I mean, they have to be part of your calculus right now if if you're planning on keeping them around. If you see them as part of your future. And obviously you've seen that in, in past years with, with some young guys who do end up then developing uh, in, into starters. And I just wanted to point out because I'm getting ahead of the narrative here. <laughs> I'm getting yes. ahead of the story or not the story, but I'm getting ahead of the, the jokes here. I know that I cannot say Rashi's name correctly. Like I know that I can't, I hear it. My, my mouth doesn't move that way. Like okay. unless I really tried Russ yeast. Russ yeast. But I yes. when I'm talking in my normal cadence, it comes out as Rush East and I don't I, I hear it. Like uh-huh. please know that I hear it. And it's like I'm watching a train wreck. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> so I I'm trying, but yeah. I cannot do anything about it. So that, you're gonna give me a complex. I'm gonna start saying Russ, Russ Yeast. It but is it, it, it's hard to It's a to, great uh, name. Yeah, it's, it's a, a fantastic name, name and yeah. I and trust me, I mean no disrespect no. at all. I just I hear I hear myself stumbling over it because like I've always had that issue where it's kind of like a bit of a slur, like a sober slur, uh, like a a sober slurring, especially with, uh, with consonants that I kind of get into sometimes. That's fascinating. Well, well, we're going to have to do it. Is it? Is it? (laughs) Should we edit this part? No, 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 not at all. So, so boring. This is going to be the highlight of the, of the podcast here. We're going to, we're going to come up with a list of names and have Jordan try to, try to say them. Oh God. uh, Oh God. (laughs) They're like, they're going to be like, what's really in her hydro flask? What's going on? Yeah. Well, Jordan, before we go, we need to stay on brand 
um, and and talk about special teams. Well, we have a little bit. We've talked about how all these guys contribute on special teams. But uh, but the one thing that uh, we can look at, I don't know, is this even so much of a competition anymore? I mean, we, we saw Cameron Dicker handling uh, pretty much everything, I think, on Saturday. But um, but is is this? Are we really down to, to to Matt Gay and Riley Dixon? I mean, is there is there a whole lot that that's going to change that between between now and week one? Uh, something else I can't say. A B T A S T. Always be talking about special special teams. I say abtashed, abtashed, abtat, abtashed, abtashed. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's I. Yeah, that's. We'll put that on the list. You've never seen me and uh, who is it, Sean Connery, in the same room yeah. at the same time. <laughs> no. Um. Yeah. No. I think. I mean, honestly, like if I were gonna say. They play games tomorrow. I think it's Matt Gay and Riley Dixon. You saw Riley Dixon coming in on holds, and to me that was really telling. Um, he's the one throwing fades to Kira Bishop uh, in the in the end yes. zone. Like he's got the quarter. Like that tells me a little bit of something. It's not. It's not that Cameron Dicker. To me, he is super intriguing, super talented, really, really valu- valuable. I think that that's something that. Um, if the Rams can keep him on their practice squad, they will, and they absolutely should. I thought he handled kickoffs well. I thought he punted well. Um, you know, in, in a lot of those sort of um, safe situations, like I think he just the the versatility there is great, and I think that they they really like that about him. And and he also offers them such a great thing in practice every day because he can be a live leg in a variety of different ways. And you need to when you have veteran specialists in other phases. You have to um, you have to consider that you have to consider okay how many reps can we really have this person do and there's no substitute for a live leg in practice if you're working on your coverage unit so I think if they can keep Riley Dixon around especially on the practice squad like not only are you looking at someone who can come in in an in an emergency situation and you're you're hopefully not having that but we've seen it some of the COVID stuff that they dealt with and and all of that you you are looking at someone who could come in in a pinch and play for you, but you are also looking at so much more efficient work for your coverage units when you're not mm. working off a jugs machine. There's if, if there's one thing I've learned <laughs> over the last three years, yes. it's how many different types of punts there are and how many different types of things you need to do to execute those punts um, if you're the coverage unit. And then also on the other side, the, retir- the return unit against a live leg is so much more valuable than the jugs machine. And I think that is a really, really great thing um, in, in having Cameron Dicker there. Um, Riley Dixon, though, in my mind, um, this is less of a competition than maybe they made it out to be. Um, the snap share was pretty blatant from the jump. Um, at the same time, everyone's spot has to be earned this time of year other than, um, you know, if you're Aaron Donald, Matthew Stafford, Jalen Ramsey, Cooper right. Cup, right. or right. Allen Robinson, or... <laughs> Any or number to, of players. <laughs> or Jordan Rodrigue. Your your oh, spot God. your spot is your spot is also secure. So God, I hope so. Yeah, no, no question about it. I've heard I've heard. I've heard. Don't worry. <laughs> um lots of fun, Jordan. Uh Rams first preseason game in the books. Looking ahead now to uh Friday night against the Houston Texans there at SoFi Stadium. Last opportunity. Only three preseason games. So uh if anybody wants to go out and check it out before the uh season opener, now's your chance to go see the exciting Houston Texans and your Los Angeles Rams. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Jordan, we've had a lot of fun, but uh, we want to transition here because uh, we have a very, very interesting guest and, and a topic that I, I think uh, is, is compelling not only to Rams fans, but, but to football fans uh, around the country and, and a great uh, book that we're going to take a look at. So uh, do, you want to, do you want to introduce our special guest? Yeah, so super excited, Rich. Without further ado, here's Dan Taylor. We have a treat for 11 personnel listeners this morning. Author Dan Taylor joins us on the show. So Dan wrote Walking Alone, the untold journey of football pioneer Kenny Washington, a person who, of course, all Rams fans should know about as the first black football player to sign a contract in the NFL, which he did so in 1946. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. How are oh, you? I'm great. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks. We are stoked to have you. Um, you wrote this story in such rich detail. And it is a story that I think needs to be broadly known, um, not through the arc, not just through the arc of football's history, but through the arc of American history. So as you're sort of getting inspired to that, this is the subject, right? This is the thing that you are going to spend every, probably every waking second writing about, (laughs) thinking about over the course of of a, I would assume a couple of years, um, what inspired you to write Kenny Washington's story? Because you didn't just write his general biography. Like this, I want people to know, like this is his story in such deep detail and stunningly so many still don't know about. Well, a great friend of mine is a UCLA guy. And uh, we were having a conversation one day about Jackie Robinson. And he was telling me that when he was at UCLA in the 60s, that uh, there were a couple of professors there who were there on campus in 39 when Kenny Washington and Jackie Robinson were in the same backfield of the UCLA football team. And these professors insisted that as great as Jackie Robinson was football and baseball, that Kenny Washington was far better. And my friend later in his first coaching job had a colleague who had been a teammate on that 39 UCLA team. And he said the same thing. And, you know, having gone to UCLA games, I knew Kenny's number was retired, which meant he was probably a pretty good football player. And, uh, and that he'd been with the Rams and uh, that he was the first African-American uh, in the NFL, which was a little confusing to me because I certainly heard the stories of Fritz Pollard and Paul Robeson, who played many years earlier. And uh, so when we had this conversation, it just really sparked my curiosity. And when I rolled up my sleeves and started doing some research into Kenny Washington to learn more about him, I, I was just constantly blown away. It was just, you know, adjective after adjective after adjective you know, reading articles or talking to various people who had a connection to him. And, and I was really floored in one of my first conversations with the editor I work with at Roman and Littlefield. And, and she said, are you telling me this story has never been told? And I said, I'm in disbelief about that myself. This is just maybe the greatest football player of all time, according to Hall of Famers who saw him. And 
he had such a remarkable impact in, in so many areas. Uh, you know, could have been right there with Jackie Robinson as uh, first African-American in baseball. Uh, could have been a, uh, an outstanding heavyweight boxer, was a star of movies. Uh, just an amazing life. And, and I'm just stunned that the story had, had not been told before. Why do you think that is, Dan? Because, I mean, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. I've lived my entire life here. And, and I heard the name Kenny Washington, but not in any depth, certainly not in any depth that you heard Jackie Robinson and heard the, the legends. Um, why do you, do you think that is? Why, why did that story go untold for so long, given that he was such a tremendous athlete and such a big part of history? I'm really puzzled by that myself, Rich, because I, I do think, in one hand, Jackie Robinson has really overshadowed him. And I understand that and I have no criticism of that. Uh, but I do think that Kenny really deserved to be held up as well. I think part of it, too, is the timing. When Jackie Robinson signed in October 45 with the Dodger organization, you know, baseball was far and away the national pastime. And every, almost yeah. every newspaper in the country you know, ran stories with huge headlines about Jackie signing. At the time that Kenny signed with the Rams, football was maybe sixth, seventh on the, on the interest list in America. And it was really no big deal. You saw stories in, in most of the papers that were just nothing more than a sentence or two or a single line in, in a sports column or its notes column. Uh, so, you know, I think those were, were big, big factors. And also, you know, a lot was made of, of Kenny being the Jackie Robinson of the NFL. And in reality, you know, I've tried to really uh, be as accurate as I can on this, that he reintegrated the NFL. Right. He went through a 12, 13 year period where they had this unwritten policy. But that there were men like Fritz Pollard and Joe Lillard and, and others. And, and I can see where, uh, you know, people have asked, well, why doesn't the NFL treat Kenny like, like baseball does Jackie? And, and I think it's a difficult question to answer. But my thought is not having asked it of the NFL directly, but you disrespect the guys that were there before him by focusing the spotlight on Kenny. And I think that's probably another factor as well. Yeah, I'd imagine it's... Um as we look back to, and you obviously in researching this book, you were immersed in the the time period in terms of the coverage at the time, not just about Kenny or the lack thereof, but also just about the sports landscape in general at that time. And as we continue to sort of reflect and study what the media landscape is and how it what it's turned into, I do think that an ongoing conversation is how we can frame and how media can frame the stories of a diverse range of people and players that frankly and clearly there was no bandwidth or awareness or effort for outside of people who were outliers, right? And there was only the space for, you know, okay, one person who's an outlier, okay, we're going to cover them. And that's such a problematic part, I think, of our landscape as media, but also you know, the American landscape in general, where, okay, more than one person um, who is of a diverse background can exist as an outlier at the same time, right? And I think that that's such a problematic part, obviously. And you, you, I'm sure as you're going through all of these old newspapers, I would imagine, and radio broadcasts and, and all of these things, I'm sure you, that, that struck you as well. And so I do want to talk to you about your research process because this book, I, I do also want to reiterate, I know I've said it a couple of times, but this book is so detailed. And I think you really captured, um, like you could tell you, as I'm reading this as a journalist, I'm thinking to myself, my God, this man sorted through hundreds and hundreds of thousands <laughs> of words of copy. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it was fascinating. It was it's, it's fascinating to see how it was covered. You know, there was no athletic back then. There was no sports shame. center back then. What a shame. Uh, they really, really <laughs> lost. And so, and it's kind of reflective in the Heisman Trophy voting mm-hmm. because Kenny carries the West Coast, but that's it. And the rest of the country really didn't know a lot about him. Many of UCLA's games were played at night. Um, and, and, and probably the most celebrated sports writer of that day was Grantland Rice. And Grantland Rice was the only one of 13 All-America selectors not to choose Kenny for any of his first, second, or third team squads. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was the coverage back then in Los Angeles, very open-minded, somewhat progressive. He was the most popular athlete in the city. I mean, he got, uh, from high school on, got just amazing coverage. And, uh, you know, Alice Marble wins Wimbledon in 1939, comes home to Los Angeles, and finishes second in the Athlete of the Year voting to Kenny Washington. Uh, you know, where else in the country would that happen? You know, that's one of the things I tried to, research was what other cities was an African-American, the most popular athlete, you know, in 1939, 40, 41, uh, you know, maybe Joe Lewis in Detroit. That's hard, hard to say, but it was not, there was no denying Kenny Washington was the most popular athlete in Southern California, but around the country. Yeah. Different pockets of the country. He was ignored uh, or just, you know, a little notice. Uh, Yeah. it, It was very fascinating to see. How do you think Kenny processed all of that, Dan? I mean, I, I understand it's a product of the times and, and, you know, looking back, we can, we can see terrible injustice, but at the time, how does he process that being the best player in college football and, and really not having a path to, to, to continue that at the highest level? You know, Rich, that, that's a question that, that I, I carried throughout this whole process and really never got an answer to. And the, the tough, it was one of the tough parts of trying to research this book. You know, his daughter was very upfront that she came into the family well after Kenny's career. And to her, he was dad. And she yeah. told me a story, and I hope I'm remembering it accurately, that I think she was in middle school and she came home from school one day and Willie Mays is sitting at the kitchen table talking to her dad. And she said, that's kind of when the light bulb went off. That, Gosh, my dad must have been somebody, you know. Yeah. Uh, Kenny's son passed away a number of years ago. Uh, his, his grandson shared that they knew a bit, but not a lot. So it was very difficult. And that's one of the things, you know, how was he raised? What did his grandmother instill in him uh, or his uncle Rocky? You know, his parents were really out of the home. Uh, he, he didn't have much of a relationship with all his father, who was pretty much an absent father. Uh, you know, he was he was born uh, Lincoln Heights at that time was a was an immigrant neighborhood. Uh, his neighbors were all immigrants from Italy. Uh, when he got to UCLA, Woody Strode laughed at one of the amazing things about him wasn't his athletic ability, but they spoke with a bit of an Italian accent. Um, so that's what I really wanted to learn. His, his daughter shared an interesting story with me to me uh, about I asked about his relationship with Jackie Robinson. Hmm. And she said they were friends. Um, and in really digging deeper and talking to Babe Horrell's daughters, the 39 UCLA head coach, you know, Kenny was really a mentor to Jackie Robinson. Jackie had a real volatile temper. And, and he, he was not well-liked initially by his teammates at UCLA. And Kenny would take him on long walks and, and try to really uh, make him see big picture and calm him and, and you know, teach him about fighting his battles you know, when, they're, when they're warranted. Um, but I wanted to know where that came from. And, and sadly, I, I just could never really get that answer. Um, I thought that was a really important thing to, to be able to, to share was, you know, how Kenny was raised and, and, and learned 
uh, these lessons because it, there's no denying from everything I read and everybody I talked to, he was a high character individual. But uh, but Rich, that was a real frustration trying to to peg that you know to to particular life lessons or or the influence of of someone in his young life. And, well, and sorry, just to finish that, for people who don't know, he died very young too. Mm -hmm. So pro probably also a complication in putting all of this together, right? I mean, he died at fifty two. Exactly. He, he suffered a, a very rare and incurable heart-lung disease, spent most of the last two years of his life in, in hospitals. Uh, but in 1971, he passed at the age of, of 52. That's, that's correct. I guess, too, in, in hearing you talk about just wanting to know more and sometimes hitting that wall of sometimes the information just didn't, maybe didn't exist to find or hadn't been preserved. So for you, I would imagine that reiterated your passion to making sure that this remarkable man was preserved and is preserved in history in in a way that that shines more of a light even though you you know you yourself are still i i think in search of of details you know this book is so comprehensive it's it's like it you really felt how important it was that this person is preserved for you and so i wonder did that sort of keep you going sometimes when things were frustrating in terms of, of that research process? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it was a very, you know, every step of the way, it just, you know, the importance of it grew, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, to the earlier question, another thing that was very challenging and very frustrating and that I never got answered, you know, UCLA in 1939 had five African-Americans on their team. Um, all were pretty much recruited under Bill Spaulding's uh watch as the head coach. He, he stepped down after the 38 season, but what was it about Bill Spaulding when there were only 12 schools in America that, that had integrated football teams at that time? And, and, and that was a question I, I tried and tried, tried to get answered. You know, what was his background? What was, what were his thoughts? Why is it that, that he really had no issue with having African-American players on his team and across town USC did? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was another thing. I, I tried reaching out to family members. Uh, it drove me crazy to find out that his son actually for many, many years didn't live too far from me and has since mm -hmm. passed away. Uh, tried to reach a grandson and, and didn't really have any luck connecting. And that was another big question that was very frustrating. I mean, Bill Ackerman oversaw the athletic department at that time. And I did find an article that, that mentioned that you know, when he would try to make the travel accommodations and, and if he mm. found any hotel that had any issue with UCLA having African-American players, Bill Ackerman's line was always, we're, we're all God's children. Mm -hmm. And so that told me a little bit about Ackerman, but I could never really uh, pin down Bill Spaulding. And, and those were things that were really challenging. And, and it's it, your thought about uh, your question also about media coverage. What was stunning mm -hmm. was the terms that the media used about uh, Washington and Robinson and Woody Strode and the others. I mean, it, it was horrific to read this stuff. And, and it was very common back then, and, you know, working on another book uh, as well. And, and I've found that back East uh, as well with regard to Italian Americans, uh, just stunning uh, the terminology that was used at that time. Dan, you, you talked about um, this being the, the reintegration, so to speak, uh, with, with Kenny. Um, can you, I, I know this is such a huge part of it, I'm asking you to sum it up in a, in a, in a couple of minutes here, but, but the, the motivations um, in, in 1946 around that time, uh, motivation for a team like the Rams to, to make that move when they did, why other teams did and didn't, 
why was that uh, the right moment for for Kenny? Why was that the right moment for the Rams? And I'm I'm assuming the motives in in these cases are not always entirely pure uh, for for the teams. Well, uh, a lot has been said about uh, when the Rams uh, general manager Chili Walsh initially came into town after they had made their announcement that they were leaving Cleveland for Los Angeles. Uh, he went before the Coliseum Commission to secure a lease. And at that time, USC and UCLA had exclusivity. They, in part of their lease, it said no professional football could be played in the Coliseum. So there were behind-the-scenes negotiations with them to allow the Rams to come in and use the Coliseum. Uh, but when Chilia Walsh went before the Coliseum Commission, uh, there were three African-American newspapers in the city at that time, and they appointed Hallie Harding of the Sentinel to be their spokesperson. And he stood up at the meeting and, and, and gave a very impassioned speech. And in a nutshell said, the Coliseum was built with taxpayer money. African-Americans in the community were those, among those taxpayers. And a lease should not be granted to an organization, a team that will not sign African-American players. And Chili Walsh took offense, uh, it became a little bit contentious, but uh, Walsh declared, we will sign Kenny Washington. Now, I've also uncovered some, some information that indicated that the Rams also saw Washington as a box office draw. They knew how popular he was. And, and, you know, the Hollywood Bears were selling out that 22,000 seat Gilmore Stadium week in, week out because of Kenny Washington. And so they saw the box office and, and potential there and the importance. And uh, Chili Walsh had, he had hired a local sports writer to be their PR director. And he had directed him to get with Kenny as soon as possible and get a commitment from him that he would sign with the Rams. So uh, I don't want to understate Hallie Harding's importance, what Hallie Harding did. That was huge. Mm -hmm. um, but so I think there were two reasons there. I think, you know, the Rams were answering the community, but the Rams also saw the, the box office potential in, in having Kenny Washington. And, and I've often thought because the All-American Football Conference started at that same time, they launched in 46 and Los Angeles had a team, the Dons, which was owned by the actor Don Amici and others, Bob Hope and whatnot, were, were investors as well. And I've often thought, how different could things have been? How different mm -hmm. could the professional football landscape have been if they were the aggressors who went after Kenny Washington rather than the Rams? Um, I'll, I mean, I want to get to your favorite details without giving oh. away too many spoilers of the book. I know you have many, but first I do want to ask too, because you're writing this um, and you know the, the Rams have um, sort of dug in themselves into a little bit more of this history um, in their own you know, out of their own sort of organizational perspective. And so I'm kind of wondering too, but overall the, the NFL as a whole, have you seen, um, I don't even want to say enough cause we know it's, it's not enough at this time, but, but what, what has, has his legacy, how is it sort of framed now in your perspective, um, in the league as a whole, not just, you know, the hall of fame issue, but also, um, you know, just in terms of, the league recognizing some of its trailblazers? Well, you know, I think that over the last year, more has been done to put a spotlight both on Kenny, Woody Strode, and, and the guys in Cleveland uh, who integrated the AAFC at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I think more should be done. I, 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 I've had a, heard from a lot of people who have questioned whether Rams haven't done more. Um, you know, people, a, lot, a number of people have said, why haven't they retired his number? I, I think it's easy to look at his productivity with the Rams and say, well, he's not Hall of Fame worthy. Three seasons, only one was good. You know, he had problems with the knee his first year. Uh, it's easy to look at that. And also to, to look at 
you know, the African-Americans who played before him and say, well, he really wasn't the guy. He wasn't the Jackie Robinson. But I, I think in the big picture, the things he went through, uh, it was as much as if he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I think we, lo- we really lose sight of what he did with the Hollywood Bears that laid the foundation for the NFL to have success in California. Pro football had struggled to, to get any kind of a, a foothold in California at all for years. And, and when the Pacific Coast Professional Football League started in 1940 and Kenny became the sensation in that league, uh, that really laid the foundation for the NFL to have success. You know, the Rams didn't just look at Los Angeles. They put a deposit down also on the Cotton Bowl in Dallas if they couldn't get a deal in L.A. And, you know, I, I, 20 to 30 percent of their, their attendance at many of their games in 46 was African-American fans. Mm-hmm. That was very similar to, to the Hollywood Bears crowds, Gilmore Stadium. And whenever the Bears went on the road, be it San Diego or Phoenix, the biggest crowds that, that were drawn around the league were when Kenny Washington came to town. So I, I, I think we haven't looked enough at his his importance uh, in laying that foundation for professional football to be the first major league sport on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So I know this is hard too, um, but no, you just keep tossing them. I know, I know, I know. This is this is maybe an impossible question to answer, but your favorite details in this book, and there's so well, many. The one thing you know, I've read. I love baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, forgive me, uh, but <laughs> here's we're talking we'll football. It. We'll allow it. <laughs> hey, I'm a Ram fan. I've had a lot of friends play for the club, um, but I've read a lot about Jackie Robinson. And I've read there have been so many stories and books written about the other guys that were considered. I've never once seen that Kenny Washington was in the mix. And that amazed me that Jackie Robinson was lobbying Branch Rickey because Rickey had said he was going to sign two African-Americans. And Kenny, uh, Jackie was lobbying Rickey to Kenny II and Wendell Smith, the Hall of Fame sports editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, who was a confidant of Rickey's, sent a letter to Branch Rickey. I've seen the letter and, and in it he states you know, he reminds him that he was going to sign a second black player. Mm-hmm. And he points out that it should be Kenny because you will find Kenny is better than Jackie Robinson. I mean, I knew of Kenny as the football guy. I had no idea about Kenny as the baseball guy. And that amazed, absolutely amazed me. Wow. Yeah. I just, I encourage everybody to go. There's so many more details like this one <laughs> um, that, again, are a fascinating part of history, but also an important one. And Dan, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you for sharing more about this, not just your process, but about Kenny and about this book. Um, Really, really appreciate you taking the time. No, this is a treat. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dan. Again, Walking Alone, The Untold Journey of Football Pioneer Kenny Washington. Brand new book. Only been out for uh, just about a month. So uh, make sure you go to uh, all of your, any and all of your uh, book suppliers to uh, to pick this up today from Dan Taylor. So thank you very much, Dan, for very interesting chat and uh, an excellent book. Thank you very much. Well, Jordan, that was very cool. I, again, like I said, I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles and, and uh, frankly, a little bit embarrassed that, that I don't know uh, as much about Kenny Washington as, as I should. So I uh, really enjoyed talking to Dan there and really do encourage everybody to go out and, and pick up that book. So uh, great episode today. I mean, lots of insights, uh, some history lessons. Uh, yeah, we, we're showing our range, Jordan, <laughs> as we do from time to time. So uh, it's it's great to be to be back in the groove here. Great to, to be watching 
watching some football again. And uh, of course, Jordan is all over it every day uh, on Twitter at Jordan Rodrigue. And of course, you need to subscribe to The Athletic to follow her outstanding coverage. It's going to be real interesting here for the for the rest of the preseason and, of course, leading up to that uh, game against the Buffalo Bills. So thank you, of course, to all of our subscribers. And if you haven't subscribed yet, now, now is the time. And the way that you do that, very easy, very simple. will only take a minute or two. Go to theathletic.com slash 11 personnel. You'll get all of Jordan's coverage for the foreseeable future. And you will get her favorite thing in the entire world, which is what? A great discount. You guys, all year round, whether or not we are running a special at theathletic.com, which we are currently doing a dollar per month for new subscribers, another great discount. But all year round through the exciting camp days of August to the dog days of November and December, you can get a great discount. My favorite thing in the world at The Athletic. If you subscribe through the 11 Personnel Podcast, once again, my favorite thing in the world, every time you subscribe to The Athletic through the 11 Personnel Podcast. You guys, this was a fun episode to do. The preseason is rolling. Holy cow. You know, Rams versus Texans. What a time to be alive. Uh, we, will, we will be uh, reporting back after that um, next week. And in the meantime, you guys, I hope you're taking care of yourselves. I hope you're taking care of each other. We'll see you next time. 